everybody and welcome to WChat. Today we are interviewing two guests, Dr. Mira Shaw and Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe, regarding their work with family planning and the LGBTQ population. This was also a topic in our market research that many providers expressed having difficulty navigating, so Stephanie and I are both really excited about this episode because it will be part two of a four-part quote-unquote mini-series that we're doing with Dr. Shaw and or Dr. Hinchcliffe regarding their work within the LGBTQ community. We enjoyed previously interviewing Dr. Shaw regarding her work with HIV in the LGBTQ population, and we are happy that she is able to join us again. Stephanie and I would also like to make an important announcement regarding the podcast, and that is that we'll be changing our new episode releases from bi-monthly to monthly. We feel that we need the extra time to make sure that our guests and ourselves are getting enough time to process a recording so that the show and the notes are the best quality possible. However, we have set a goal that if we meet our first Patreon goal, that we will resume releasing bi-weekly episodes. To help us meet our goal, check out how you can become a patron of the WChat podcast on our website under the support us slash Patreon tab at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So hi, everyone. Just to give our listeners a little background about the people we are speaking with, we would like you both to talk a little bit about yourselves. So please tell our listeners about your background, your education and training and your current practice, like where you work and what type of patients you serve. If you want to go first, Dr. Shaw. Yeah. So hi, my name is Dr. Mira Shaw, and I am a family medicine physician practicing in New York City. I completed medical school at George Washington University in DC. And then I did my family medicine residency at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York. And for the past couple years, I have been working at a federally qualified health center called Callan Lord Community Health Center. This is a practice that serves the LGBT community. I specialize in HIV medicine, well as gender affirming care. Great. So Dr. Hinchcliffe, do you want to speak next? Hey, I'm Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe. I trained with Dr. Mira Shaw at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Family Medicine Residency in New York City. I have been on this path for a while. I was a women's studies major in college, and so while taking my pre-med requirements, it was always my interest to go into an area of women's health. And in my experience in medical school and with the training that I was able to get starting as a third year, I've been really passionate about LGBTQ health and HIV primary care and being a full spectrum family planning provider. So I got great training in residency. And after residency, I came to practice in Ohio, where I work as a faculty member in a family medicine clinic. I work at a few dedicated LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer clinics. I also work in a dedicated HIV clinic, and I work in a few dedicated family planning clinics, as well as general full scope family medicine. Okay. So the other question we would like to ask you both is what informed your practice or your perspective? So why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you or your philosophy of practice? And we'll start with Dr. Hinchcliffe this time. So I think one of the 
great things about being a doctor and answering this question is with all the personal statements that we do. We've had a lot of time to think about it. And for me, I realized that coming from the hometown that I did, I'm from Key West, Florida, a very liberal little island. And we have a large LGBTQ community and we have a pretty significant history of being an open and affirming place. The motto of Key West, Florida is all human beings are created equal members of one human family. So it was sort of just an obvious part of everybody gets care that should be equal. And I think it wasn't really until I left my hometown and started getting an education as a women's studies major in college in North Florida that I started to see that my idealized version of the world and all people being created and treated equal was not really how it was. And in medical school, there was a significant issue that a lot of gay and lesbian identified people faced. They were discriminated against by their preceptors for being gay. Some students were actually failed on their rotations. Um, One woman's wife's car was defaced in the parking lot. Uh, Another friend of mine, when I was the president of the Gay Straight Alliance, received a death threat from a fellow graduate student. And I am a sort of fiery person. And so it definitely got me real pissed and motivated to action. And through those areas, I started to get more experience and more training. And I chose a residency where Dr. Shaw and I trained together, where I would be able to continue that training, pass that training on to other people. And we both, and I think many, many, if not all of the people that came to our residency program in New York City, have a strong passion for serving marginalized and underserved populations and LGBTQ identified people definitely, and unfortunately, in many places fall under that spectrum. Just to piggyback on that, it's interesting because... I am from South Carolina, and I did not have the experience that Natalie did when I was growing up. I was, I grew up in a very conservative small town in rural South Carolina, and my experience was very interesting in that I, you know, I came from an Indian family, first, and I'm first generation, but I g- grew up around people who were very Christian, very conservative. And it wasn't until I left for college that I was exposed to this liberal bubble in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And from Chapel Hill, I went to medical school in DC, and then I moved to New York. And I was all of a sudden surrounded by really mission-driven, politically aware people who really opened my eyes to what it meant to be patient-centered and loving and caring and accepting of everyone and you know where they come from and just recognizing that everyone has a different story and everyone has a unique life experience and that has really really stayed with me through my practice of medicine and while I'm not part of the LGBTQ community I'm a fierce and strong ally and I keep these principles with me when I'm practicing medicine on a day-to-day basis. Like we said, we are going to discuss family planning and LGBTQ population, so let's jump right in. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask was, in our previous episode, Dr. Shaw discussed some of the amazing advocacy work she's doing, but Dr. Hinchcliffe, could you please tell us about the advocacy work that you are currently doing within the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I would love the chance to chat about that. One of the things that I was thinking of as I was thinking about the LGBTQ advocacy that I do and that Mira does as well is that really 
all of the advocacy work that we do for our all of our patients pertains to the LGBTQ community. There are certainly areas that are specific, but I think that gender identity and sexual orientation are found in every pocket of every patient population that we work with and have the honor to care for. So we're really doing that work all the time at any point when we're advocating for any of our patients. You know, if we're talking about end-of-life care, that's not specific to straight or cisgender-identified people. If we're talking about marriage and families and family planning, as we are on this podcast, talking about family planning, that's, of course, not specific to people who have opposite gender partners or who may identify as cisgender. But specifically within the LGBTQ world, I do some writing online, blog posts for uh, a group that I'm a part of that's associated with family practice physicians. And I've written a few things about caring for transgender patients in a general family planning clinic. I also am the Ohio LGBT delegate for a group that represents Ohio to the larger family practice network. And this is a, a great opportunity because it's how we actually get policy change by our large institution of family practice physicians nationally representing certain issues and saying that family doctors are passionate about these things. I'm also doing some community education coming up, talking about what we're talking about today, LGBTQ health and family planning and the intersection of those two areas. Um, I train medical students and in two of the areas of my work, I'm either working with a clinic to expand the care that they provide to include LGBTQ health because they already do sexual health services. And of course, they already have served LGBTQ identified people, but making their care a little bit more accessible and feel a little bit more welcoming for those populations. And again, increasing the specific areas of care, such as gender affirming care, is one of the few of the areas that we're working on. And then I'm working with the residency that I'm a part of to open an LGBTQ specific clinic within the family medicine residency so that all residents who come through that program will get that additional training. Well, I have to say that you both are very busy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because people do come in with a lot of labels and a lot of identities. And I feel like in medicine, the more identities you come with can just be seen as complex. And I think that that's when the barriers are put up to care. Like a lot of physicians aren't trained or don't feel comfortable sort of peeling away those layers and those identities. And that, as a result, can prevent our patients from getting the care that they need. I was just talking to a medical student last week, and she and I were talking about how to do a sexual history or how to take a sexual history. And she was saying like that she's like, oh, I just got comfortable asking people if they're sexually active. And now you want me to ask all these details about the genders of their partners and what kind of sex they're having. She's like, I hate this part of medicine. And I was like, what are you talking about? I love this part of medicine. Like, I, I I would agree, Natalie. I love that part of medicine. It's like my favorite part. And it's such an important part. And if you don't take a sexual history well, then you're going to miss so many important things. Because traditionally, you know, we were taught to ask, are you sexually active? And with men, women, or both. And that was it. There was no time frame. There was no discussion of body parts people have, what body parts people are using, And like that is now part of my sexual history taking. And it's an important one because if you don't ask, you don't, if you don't ask these detailed questions, you miss things. So can I ask you both then talking about taking a sexual history, could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you do that? 
So first of all, I do like a little history. In general, I want to know what gender they were assigned at birth. So I will ask that. I will ask the patient if they've had any surgeries. I will ask the patient if they have been sexually active in the past six months and in the past year. And I ask what are the genders of their partners and what body parts they are using to have sex. I ask them what they call their body parts and I pick up on the language that they're using me and then use that language for the rest of the sexual history taking and say, are you having front sex, back sex? Are you having vaginal sex, anal sex, oral sex? And then I will tell them what STI testing I can offer them, like what swabs, what blood tests I can offer them. And then we sort of go from there. I will talk about if contraception is needed, um, what pregnancy intentions are, and you know, address whatever I need to address at that point. So the two things that I think that Dr. Shaw highlighted that are really important and maybe are outside of what will be typically taught in a medical school or in a residency are asking the genders of people's partners. It's a plural question and it includes cis and transgender partners. And then the second part that she mentioned is finding out if pregnancy prevention is desired and if it's applicable. So first, is pregnancy possible from the type of sex that this person is having for themselves or for their partner? And I think it's important to come to that space where we're assessing people's risk for pregnancy if it is their body that would get pregnant or the person they're partnering that would get pregnant, because I think we really need to change that dialogue for us all to recognize that there are two people responsible in those situations. And in finding that out, I've had colleagues who recommend to me and through conversation with patients asking pretty straightforward. If you think that it's at the patient's level of comprehension is the type of sex that you're having the sort of sex where someone can get pregnant. And sometimes that's not the right question for patients and they'll kind of look at you like they're confused. But as she was talking about in someone who was born female and identifies as male may identify as a transgender male or somewhere along the transmasculine experience using the words that they use for their body parts and then asking about the type of sex that they're having with those body parts. You can even be asking, does your partner produce sperm? Are you having sex in a part of your body that could get you pregnant? And those two parts of not only giving people the space to say they have male and female partners, but that they have trans male partners and cis female partners, or however they may practice, and then also going further and finding out about the possibility of pregnancy, not just for the person that's in front of you, but for the person that they partner with to help them share that responsibility in preventing or in getting pregnant if that's their desire. So the the part that Natalie said um, regarding body parts, I think that's really important because a lot of patients will either identify as gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, or gender expansive. Um, And gender just to just to highlight gender expansive is actually becoming a little bit more common because gender non-binary suggests what the person is not identifying as whereas gender expansive is talking about what the person is identifying as if if that makes sense can you just walk us through each of those concepts a little bit more traditionally people are taught that that we are all on like a binary. So either people identify as cis male or either identify as cis male. But what's being more and more recognized is that actually people identify somewhere along a gender spectrum. Now, people who are gender non-binary or gender non-conforming may be 
don't identify as either gender or, or identify somewhere in between that spectrum. And now the language is sort of moving towards gender expansive because gender non-binary is saying, I don't identify as male or female, whereas gender expansive is saying, I may identify as one or none. Does that, does that make sense? I think you're getting at the idea of outside of two boxes versus, which is the non-binary idea versus, I'm not saying the boxes are the right way to define and I'm, I'm I, I associating with an expansive identity versus unassociating with a binary identity. Do you have an example? I, I mean, I have patients who, who don't identify entirely as female, don't identify entirely as male. They identify as somewhere in between. So instead of saying I'm non-binary or I'm non-conforming, meaning I don't identify as female, I don't identify as male. The alternative is to say that I identify somewhere along the spectrum. Does that make sense? Okay. We'll just let that kind of soak into our listeners' brains. I think that with the history taking, you know, actually breaking it down to anatomy and sperm and eggs and can be really important when speaking to patients who are gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender expansive. Either the person themselves will be identifying as that or their partners will be identifying as that. And so it can help you get more information as to what the risks are for certain STIs, for pregnancy, and then can help you uh, counsel them on what's needed after that. It's also super important because it's one of the rare opportunities in the sexual health history taking that physicians and other providers have to supplement sexual health education or potentially lack thereof because so much of reproductive autonomy or autonomy that's even not related to our reproductive or sexual lives is related to it's important to know your body and how it works and to have as much knowledge about your body as the person who's sitting across from you when you're visiting with a provider and is making these suggestions and recommendations for you. So when we get to the point that we're talking about how someone defines parts of their anatomy and whether or not someone produces sperm and with those two components of sexual behavior, parts of body and sperm, is pregnancy possible? We're really participating in an exchange where I hope that we're empowering patients to understand their bodies more and thus giving them the space where they can expand their reproductive autonomy. You bring up a really good point. Something that I hear a lot from my patients is that they feel that they are teaching their providers about their bodies and the experiences that they're having sexually. And that can be a huge barrier to care. So it's really important. And I applaud you, Natalie, for doing the education and the training that you're doing with residents and medical students in caring for the LGBT population and for sexual and gender minorities, because I think that it is really, really important for physicians and medical providers to have an understanding that you know, people have a variety of experiences um, with their gender, with sexuality, and they need to come prepared in the exam room when taking a sexual history and when providing counseling to patients, because as I keep saying, things get missed. So I, I, I do applaud you for doing that education, Natalie. Thanks. Like you were saying, it's really rad. It's really, really cool to get the opportunity to open people's minds and help them provide better care. 
And I think that, and you know, and I think you and I both do family planning as well as LGBT health. And I think that there's so many themes around bodily autonomy that are very similar that, you know, really are at the core of the work that we do. It's like celebrating that autonomy and really empowering people to be able to come receive health care and say, this is my body. I am making choices about my body and I want my medical provider, my doctor to help me exercise those rights. And I think that that makes a lot of the work that we do really exciting, especially during the time that we're working in <laughs> politically. So how does your communication change or how do your approaches change for discussing family planning based on how a person identifies? So... As a physician, it's my job to make sure that I give the best care as possible to my patients. And that involves me putting all of my assumptions at the door before I even see see the patient. I don't assume anything. I have a pretty solid understanding that gender identity, gender identity, um, sexual orientation and sexual behaviors are all very different things. And it's important to take a very thorough and detailed sexual history for everyone. And I, and I do it the same way for every single patient that I see, regardless of how they present to me. Identity doesn't really change the way that I discuss family planning. I take the same history for everyone, regardless of how they identify. We can assume that we know based on someone's appearance or the name in the computer or what clinic we're seeing them at. We can assume what their behavior is. We can assume what their identity is. We can assume their orientation. But, you know, they people say about people who make assumptions. And I think... <laughs> I think especially for me, moving through different clinics. So some days I'm at a abortion clinic and I'm providing abortions. And some days I'm at a family medicine clinic and I'm providing any kind of care that people walk into the door for general family practice. And other days I'm in the Department of Infectious Diseases and other doing HIV care. And other days I'm in an LGBT specific clinic. So I could try and change each space to anticipate, but that's the major fallacy that people fall into is thinking that they know what the right questions are to ask and changing them based on what they see in the chart and how the person looks in front of them. I mean, if you think about it that way, it sounds completely ludicrous that we would change what we ask because you can't always assume that the first answer to a question is necessarily accurate. Patients sometimes will grow more comfortable with you over time, and they won't reveal that they have had partners of the same um, sex assigned at birth until much later into your care for them. Or they will not tell one person who presents them to you that is the person that's documented in their chart that they identify as male, although they were born female. And you may be the first person they share that with. And the reason that they share it with you may be because you asked these open-ended questions that made no assumptions and that created a space for them and sent a message to them that you are affirming and you are comfortable with any answer that they may have because you're going to ask questions where anything could be the answer. So it's all about leaving it open and being open in your questions for all of your patients, not specific to people that you believe or don't believe are a part of this community. And two things I wanted to add to what Natalie said. The first is that people's sexual preferences and practices can change over time. So it's really important to periodically check in with patients. So if, let's say, a cis female 
tells you, you know, in one day that she is sexually active with only cis female partners, you know, in six months that could change. So it's important to periodically check in with patients and see what their practices are so that you can provide them with whatever screenings and tests that they need. And then the second thing is, is that, you know, many of our patients, let's say like this, the trans masculine experience are using testosterone therapy as part of their gender affirming care and may not be menstruating anymore. Yet, you know, we're not quite sure what this does for ovulation. We think that it decreases fertility, but we but we're not sure that it, you know, totally takes pregnancy off the table. And so if patients are having sex in a procreative way, you know, they may be at risk for unplanned pregnancy. And so it's important to talk to them about contraception. There isn't a lot of great data about this, but there are a few studies that show that many people of the transmasculine experience will begin to have, will expand their sexual preferences after initiating testosterone therapy. You know, where before testosterone, they may not have been having anal sex. After testosterone, they may start having anal sex. And that's just one example of something that might change. And in which case, that may warrant a discussion about PrEP for example. And so those are certain things that are also important to keep in mind when talking about family planning um, and sexual health with the LGBT community. I think the idea that people on testosterone born female, whether they identify as gender nonconforming, gender expansive, non-binary, trans male, trans masculine, is that when Testosterone prevents monthly bleeding or menses, however a patient is comfortable talking about that. If it stops, it does not mean that they cannot get pregnant. It is not a complete contraceptive method. And helping patients recognize that by giving them that information and helping them not get pregnant if they don't want to, get pregnant if they do want to, as we've said before, that's a part of enabling them to access their reproductive autonomy. Another common misconception that I hear all the time is that once hormone therapy is initiated, fertility is off the table. And that's not actually true. There are many instances in which you can stop hormone therapy, whether it be testosterone therapy or estrogen um, and testosterone blockers. Um, You can stop those things and then pursue sperm banking or egg freezing and then resume hormone therapy. So we've we've seen a lot of success in cases like that. That said, it is best to pursue gamete preservation prior to initiating hormone therapy. But just because an individual started hormone therapy doesn't mean that that they don't have any fertility options down the road. Are there any other nuances of family planning related to how a person identifies? Or what kind of things do you talk about or not talk about? It sort of exists in the way that Mira talked before about determining if pregnancy is a possibility. And beyond that, is it desired, undesired? So are we talking about contraception or are we talking about planning to grow a family? And also recognizing behavior can be fluid and orientation and identity as well as far as someone's sexual identity saying that they partner only with men or they partner only with women. There's a fluidity and that can certainly change. And when someone comes into a behavior practice that would have an additional screening or preventative 
component to it, recognizing that and being able to offer it. So she gave the example of someone of the transmasculine experience who initially had partnered only with women. And then after using tea, sexual interests expanded, or maybe it was based on a specific person that they met and they partnered with a male bodied person or a person assigned sex male at birth. And now they're in a category where potentially they're at risk for HIV and talking to them about Truvada and prevention, pre-exposure prophylaxis of HIV then becomes the conversation that you're having. And it's, I, I think it's hard to give it an algorithm because it's beyond an algorithm because it's patient-centered. And it's really about having the knowledge in all of these areas that as your patient's experience may move into a different area of attention, whether that area of attention is pregnancy or HIV prevention or HIV care, that you have the information once your patient, if they do come to that space, you have the information to give them, to arm them with that. And the way that we've set up our sort of, you know, algorithm and our history taking is that it does really lend itself to us getting all of the answers that we need into making sure that the care that we give them is really tailored to them. And as Natalie said, in a very patient centered way, you know, whether it be evaluating for risk for pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV or you know, evaluating for the need for an IUD, whether it be for contraception or whether it be to shut off menstruation because this patient is not on testosterone but is transmasculine identifying and doesn't want a period anymore because that's triggering dysphoria. Or, you know, if patient is having only oral sex and needs gonorrhea chlamydia testing from the throat. So the way that we've set up our history taking is to really get, give us all of that information so that we can then tailor our counseling for whatever that particular patient needs. My sort of research interest and so my dissertation is how providers talk about pregnancy intention with their patients. So how do you sort of initiate that discussion about what is someone, what's one of your patient's pregnancy intention? And so there is also this evidence-based method called like, the one key question, which if you're having a hard time sort of getting that information from a patient, or if they seem sort of indifferent in the moment, then you can ask, how would you feel if you were to get pregnant in the next year? Giving that time frame somehow triggers the patient to feel like they need to make a decision. And it's not really to coerce them, but to get them kind of thinking concretely like, oh, I wouldn't want to get pregnant in the next year, or I would want to get pregnant in the next year, or honestly, I still don't know how I feel about it. And that's okay, but it can help guide discussion. And I don't, I don't know if you've heard of the, the one key question. Yes, I have. And we can provide our listeners with a link to their website. But yeah. And how does that change then if you know someone, you know, based on your sexual history taking is not able to achieve pregnancy? Do you change how you talk about, I guess, family building then? The comment that I make routinely to my patients, especially when we initiate hormones, and Mira's right, it is possible for people who are on estrogen and T-blockers or for people who are on testosterone come off of those medications later and then become um, to biologically have children with someone or themselves. But 
The thing that I always tell patients, of course, we want them to be aware of the risks and the possibility that that would not be possible. So when we're initiating hormones, I'm always talking to them about the possible loss of fertility. And the thing that I always say is there's many ways to make a family. And I think that it's important that we don't make the assumption when we talk about family planning that the only type of family planning people are participating in is for biological children um, because there are many ways to make a family. And so if I have a patient who is who has a body that does not have a uterus or who has a body that has a uterus and whose partner also has a uterus or is in some other relationship where pregnancy is not immediately possible without other intervention, then I I speak to them about how they imagine their family and how they want to build their family because potentially it doesn't matter if there's two uteruses in that relationship or if just like it wouldn't matter potentially in a relationship between a cis man and cis woman if the male is not producing sperm or if the sperm are not of a a swim ability that they could cause pregnancy, you're still going to that space, excuse me, where you're trying to open up the possibility for your patients or meet them where they're already at in this open possibility of the other ways that they could potentially make a family and let them tell you first how it is they desire to build a family before you make that assumption that they want that child to come out of their body or out of their partner's body, because maybe it's not. I'm just like loving all of this so much that I'm finding myself just sitting here and like, I can't even think of questions. So I'm like, wow. I mean, and that's, that's the thing about this kind of care and why it's so rewarding for people who are invested in it from a variety of different providers, right? We're not just talking about doctors. We're not just talking about medical providers. There's a lot of people involved in care of other humans. And when you get down to it and you're focused on evidence-based and patient-centered, there's only expansive possibility to give your patient the best care. And that also includes hearing from other providers or other healthcare people that, hey, I actually ask this way. Maybe you should think of that because maybe this would open things more for your patient or make them feel more comfortable. Like I'm learning from Mira just as I have since I met her in this conversation about new ways to communicate with patients and new things to think about and new research. And when you come from that perspective of we want to do the best thing for the patient, give them, I mean, you can't argue with evidence or at least you should not. Facts are facts. And the right thing always to do for the patient is the most patient-centered thing. So when you have that common ground, it's like, it's a beautiful, beautiful aspect of providing care from one human to another because no one is wrong and nothing is better or worse. It's all about the patient and what we currently know from research that we can or cannot do, should or should not do, and sharing the information we have so that they're the ones choosing the risks and benefits, but doing it in an informed way and doing it in relationship with a healthcare system that supports them and reduces their risk as much as possible. I was lucky enough to attend a conference about sexual health and cancer, and there was a sex therapist there who talked about sex and dealing with, you know, our own shame around sex as providers. And we hope to have her on later, but if you guys can sort of go back in time a little bit and think about how did you deal with that? You know, you have this perspective and you wanted to ask these questions, but did you have some sort of barriers, personal barriers that you had to overcome with asking these questions? And how did you sort of do that? How did you overcome those barriers? As I said, in the beginning, I grew up in South Carolina in a very conservative part of the country. And I also grew up in an Indian family where we didn't talk about sex. 
you know, that's not something that was ever brought up, ever talked about. It was assumed that you wait until marriage. And, you know, so growing up, I had my own biases. And then I went to college and I went to medical school and that sort of opened my eyes to the realities of sex. And as a physician, I have learned that it's really important to check all of that at the door. Because if ultimately my goal is to provide my patient with the best care possible, then I cannot bring my bias into the room. I I have to be as open-minded and accepting of where the patient is coming from, regardless of how I feel. I can still go home and like think what I want to about sex, but when I am practicing medicine and I am in the exam room, I have to you know, keep them in mind and keep them first and foremost and recognize that people, you know, have their own experiences and have their own lives. And that's sort of, you know, my history and where I'm coming from with it. Because it's really important that these discussions are being had. From You know, I have a little sister who is a lot younger than me, and I make sure that we have a very open channel of communication about it because I think that talking about it is incredibly important. For me, I... It's actually a really great question. I appreciate you asking it because I hadn't thought of it before. And my answer about how I check my own biases or the shame and stigma that I have within myself about my sexual orientation and behavior and identity and all of that is that it's really advocating for my patients has helped me to accept and love myself more. I think I grew up in a... Catholic faith. And this is my experience. It is not the experience of everyone who is raised Catholic, but it was very no sex before marriage, no questions about it. And sex is between a man and a woman. It is within with the intention of procreation, period. And when I started to become a sexual person and to experience my sexuality, I was doing it without any medical knowledge whatsoever. If you took advanced practice classes in my high school, you did not have to go to sexual education. So I learned about my anatomy from the Tampax insert in the box that shows the like bisected cut out of a woman's body inserting a tampon. And when I tell you I studied that thing, I mean, I studied it, which is really sad because there's not a lot going on in that photo. But But that for me was like my first understanding of my body and what it looked like on the inside and what it could do and and where there were different compartments that I was not aware of and things like that. And so I definitely had a lot of shame within my own experience. And as I came into my sexuality and came to understand, I identify as queer, I'm attracted to men and women, whether that be cis or trans, I sort of had to confront these feelings that I had about myself as recognizing that they were very different from the way that I felt about and judged other people. Cause I never had any judgment about, or I believe I didn't, I would be naive to think I had none ever um, about people who had same sex partners or who identified as a gender or of a gender identity different than what they were assigned at birth. But as I came out and as I had a visible relationship with a female partner. I was doing this at the same time that I was the Gay Straight Alliance president in my medical school and was being out and she was not and what that felt like and what that 
situation created as far as tensions within families and identities. I think that some of the way that I feel that I affirm for my patients is it comes from my experience of going through that process with myself and affirming and accepting myself. And it feels like every time I affirm a patient, I'm sort of extending and continuing that self-acceptance and self-nurturing process. Like Dr. Shaw said, you have to check any bias at the door because patients see it. They feel it. They can appreciate it on your face. If you, if your jaw drops when they say something, or if your brow crinkles when they give you an answer, my recognition of how that would limit my care is partially why conversations on Sunday evenings between Mira and I are so fun because we get to sort of hash all those things out in a non-patient care situation and talk about them and feel through them and think through them. And by doing that, we're aware of where we may have different biases or variabilities and experience or expectation of what our patients will come to us with. And although I identify as cis or I am a cisgender female and I am not HIV positive, I feel like those components of my experience helped me to identify more with people who do identify as transgender or outside the gender binary or who are HIV positive and facing stigma because of it. It's about finding that inner network that we all have as human beings that helps us relate to each other. I know that I'm one of those people who shows emotion on my face. I'm very terrible at hiding it. And so when I think about some of our listeners and, and again, even myself, you know, coming from this little area and then going to bigger areas and you're like, people do what? Like, this is a thing? People, what? You know, and, and it was can like jar, like jar your brain to think of what other people are doing when you've had such like a limited lens on what is sex. So I'm just wondering, I think you both kind of touched on this as far as tips, but like with that rural provider or someone who's not always exposed to all of the nuances or of what people are doing sexual wise, do you check your face? To be honest, I don't even have any biases anymore. I, you know, I've been working with patients and for me, it's about humanity and recognizing that they are people, my patients are human beings just like I am. And I give them the respect that I would want. And you know, we talk a lot about, especially in the abortion world, about like finding the middle ground. And I think that you know, a colleague of mine said something so amazing the other day. She goes, honestly, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the patient thinks. And like, if our goal is to provide them with the best care that we can, then we need to just be worried about what is best for them. It doesn't matter, again, what you think or what I think what the politicians think, what the voters think. It matters what the patient thinks and what they're experiencing in their life and nothing else matters. And so if you just kind of always maintain that that framework, you're going to do your patient the best service. And so that's kind of, that's, that's sort of my philosophy. Also to kind of expand that further, for old learners practice for relearners practice the first time that you ask those questions about the genders of someone's partners or if they're having sex in such a way with such a partner they could get pregnant don't have that first conversation be with a patient have it be with someone that you're practicing that conversation with just like we do as far as okay present to me before you present to the attending or you know doing a patient simulation before you're out in the clinic have 
those opportunities for your face to make all those funny expressions because you're totally shocked by the response, but in a controlled setting. In the residency that Mira and I attended, we had such an opportunity where we had patients of different behaviors and backgrounds and identities. They were true patients, but this was not their visit. Their very gracious gift to us was to pretend this was a patient visit and have us ask all these personal questions and give us answers that may be different than we had received before so that we could go through that whole experience of like, oh my goodness, really? Okay. And have that be in a controlled setting. It's all about practice. And like, and then you'll come out the under end, like Dr. Shaw, where she's been doing this work so long. She's like, you could not say anything that could shock me or that could startle me. And when you, when you're focused on like she said, the humanity of the other person. And if you ever find yourself in a tough spot, you kind of have a backup, which for me is tell me more about that. And I find myself all the time where I confuse or it's unclear or I'm curious or I don't totally understand saying, checking my face, checking my body language and simply saying, tell me more about that. And it's okay to share with people if you feel like it's already come across on your face, you got to be cautious with the words that you use as far as saying new or different, but saying, I'm curious to hear more about that, or you're sharing a new area of knowledge with me. It's not your responsibility to educate with me, right? But in the situations where we find ourselves, where we are essentially asking our patients to do that, apologizing, and then following it up with, but tell me more, help me understand that a little bit better. I want to be able to at the right follow-up question. So if you could give me a little more information about that, what does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? What is that literally, what is literally happening or whatever questions you need to get answered so that you can get the right information across to them, get the right screening and testing done. Sometimes you're going to fall into areas where you might be surprised or you might not know, or you may say the wrong thing. And you're a human treating a human. Apologize say that you messed up, apologize if you're going to ask them for teaching and then say, I'm sorry, I'm asking you, but can you tell me more about that? Cause I'm not familiar. So Nicole and I are in some provider groups on Facebook and sometimes we come across questions that providers ask the group about how to handle a certain situation. So this is a situation where a nurse practitioner encountered And with her permission, she was okay with us sharing it on our podcast. So we won't read the situation verbatim, but this is just sort of a summary of the situation she encountered. So she has a 17-year-old bisexual patient who came in to talk about birth control at her mother's request because the mom thought it would help her with her depression. The patient came out to her family a few months ago, and the family has been incredibly unsupportive of her. Her low mood predates her coming out and has continued to worsen since coming out. She also had a history of cutting herself. The patient is sexually active with a female partner has regular periods that aren't heavy or crampy, and the patient and provider both came to the conclusion that medication for depression and a psych eval would be more beneficial to improving her mood than birth control. However, the mom later reached out to the provider very upset that her daughter wasn't put on birth control and is adamant that her daughter doesn't have true depression and that her mood is stemming from her cycle in part because she is confused about her sexuality in quotes. Mom thinks if she understood her cycle more and chose to be straight, all her problems would be fixed. That's all right. (laughs) Wants to send her to a religious counselor. 
Now mom is pushing for IUD and has scheduled another appointment to discuss all of this. The provider is obviously not putting in an IUD without the daughter's consent and is trying to figure out how best to help her. She has given the patient numbers to crisis hotline, LGBT talk lines, and some local resources. So there's obviously a lot going on with this situation. So we'll try and take it a step at a time. How would you first approach this situation? So many things to say. One thing that I wanted to ask is, was the mother in the room, like speaking to the provider at all? Or was all of the information about the mom coming through the patient, the 17-year-old? I think it was both. I think there was time where the provider was with the mom, but then also just with the patient. There is clearly a lot of anxiety coming from the mother about her daughter's sexuality. And it sounds like she's trying to give, like, find a reason for her mood symptoms. And she's attributing that to her menstruation, which is really interesting. And it's complicated because this 17-year-old is young and her mother is trying to influence her and try to manage, you know, her care a little bit. I think that it would be really helpful. I always like the idea of like a family meeting, having an appointment set up with the the 17-year-old and the mom and the three of us talking about kind of what's really going on and kind of getting at some of the deeper issues that the mom's having and create a space for an honest and frank discussion about some of the mom's hesitations and insecurities and sort of allowing the, the, the daughter to speak up about them as well. And, and then I also think, I, I like the idea of family meetings sometimes because as a, as a, when the physician's in the room, it's easy to then, or the medical provider's in the room, it's, it's easy to sort of bust myths right then and there. That like, her periods are the cause of her mood. Well, probably not. And, you know, I don't think that like birth control or IUD are going to treat that or, you know, that's, that's not what the patient wants. So let's try to keep like her wishes, you know, first and foremost. And like, it's, it's nice to be able to be there and like act on some of the things that are being said, like right in the moment. And that can help facilitate discussion. What were you going to say, Natalie? I think that by speaking to them in the same moment, like Dr. Shaw said, you can check a lot of where those feelings are coming from. And I would encourage the discussion as it happens in the future to include with the mom and the patient, the things that mom doesn't need to consent for based on the laws of that state. So talking about the patient's mental health, talking about contraception, those are things that we actually don't need parental consent for. And I would say that not in a way ever to encourage a patient to go around their parents. It's always best if they have a good and safe relationship with their parents that they speak to them. But if they don't have a safe relationship or don't have a good relationship or will not be able to get the care that they need to know that that's possible even without their parents. So if this patient feels that the best thing for her is the medication that was recommended and counseling that was recommended, that those things are still available to her, even if her mother is pushing specifically in the direction of contraception. Of course, it's important to unpack that, as Dr. Shaw said, with the mom and the daughter both there. I think it'd be especially important always for the daughter to be in the conversation so that the the patient can see that we're essentially being an advocate for her. And potentially the mom's idea about her sexuality being temporary is based on 
pop culture, I don't know, on not medical science about when people, just as we know about when people develop their gender identity, that when people come into their sexual orientation, as Dr. Shaw has mentioned, the fluidity of sexual orientation, um, but the low likelihood that this is a patient who's in a quote unquote phase. She may be in an exploring aspect of her sexual orientation, but it certainly is not appropriate for anyone to, that it is a phase. And before we really even get into all of that, and I'm sure the same would happen with Dr. Shaw and I kicking out the mom and having that initial conversation with the daughter is making sure that this isn't a symptom of a larger problem, that she's safe at home, that she's getting the care Right. Like, and I think that for both of us, that's such an automatic first question that like, it's hard to even think of it as like in this list, like you said, with this example of like intense layers and layers of all these problems, um, like the idea of mom pushing for an IUD, I'm like reproductive coercion, like, hello, that is not how that works. You cannot, you can't do that. And you shouldn't be able to do that. But figuring out that she's safe at home, trying to help the mother along with some medical knowledge and also let the daughter see us being an advocate for her in those situations. And then letting mom and daughter know that, you know, this is an important thing for the best outcome for everyone to be on the same page. But if you end up that you're not on the same page and you, our patient, think that this is the care that you need, you can still get this care and we're still here for you. And if parental consent is not a barrier in the jurisdiction in which she resides when it comes to sexual and reproductive health, if safety is an issue and then this mother is saying, you know, I want my daughter to get an IUD, I want my daughter to get an IUD, I don't encourage lying. But if it's a batter about the patient's safety, just say, okay, mom, I got an IUD. And if the mom comes back to the doctor and say, you know, did you put an IUD in my, in, in my daughter? I, I cannot disclose that to you. Again, I don't encourage lying, but at the same time, my, the patient's safety is first and foremost. And if the mom is putting a lot of pressure on her daughter, then I think that that is completely justified. I mean, and these may seem like small or, well, not small, like large and unlikely scenarios. But the reason that we have an over a large proportion of LGBTQ identified youth in our homeless youth population is because of situations like this, where someone becomes homeless when they're a minor, because they're not following whatever their guardian or parent says that they need to do that's in line with their heteronormative ideals, whether that is admit this is a phase and get an IUD or don't have that person in your life anymore or whatever the case may be. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to add? I have one other statement that I want to make that doesn't really go in this part of the podcast, but I'm sure Mira has thoughts to contribute to just thinking specifically about LGBTQ health and family planning. We talked about testosterone and for people who are born sex assigned at birth female and who are on testosterone, that even if it stops monthly, monthly bleedings, that it is not a foolproof form of contraception in pregnancy, depending on sex partners and sex acts is still possible. I think going in a little bit of the reverse direction is also important. I've had colleagues come to me asking questions about their friends, and I've also had patients come to me who have a uterus, who identify as male, and who are interested in being on oral contraceptives or birth control methods for some reason, and they think that they cannot use a form with estrogen or that they cannot be on any form or that they have to stop their menses or whatever the case may be. And going off the point that we've made 
many times in this podcast is it's a spectrum, it's fluid, and where people identify on the gender spectrum and thus what medications are available to them to access gender-affirming care, whether that gender-affirming care is someone who is identifying as a gender different from their birth gender, or that gender-affirming care is someone who's identifying as neither male nor female, or anywhere along that spectrum. There is a variety of ways that we can provide them care, including contraception or birth control to slow their menses, stop their menses, prevent pregnancy, respond to dysphoria, whatever the case may be. And so there's broad spectrum of medications that patients can be on for a variety of different reasons to affirm a variety of different identities. Yes. And all of the FDA approved methods for contraception and for menses cessation that are available to cisgendered people are available to all genders. Exactly what Natalie said. I also just wanted to emphasize, and I may have said this in the last episode, but everybody's gender journey is very different. And gender journey can include a social transition, hormonal transition, or surgical transition, you know, two of the above, all of the above. And then however an individual chooses to transition or wherever they are in their gender journey may dictate what type of family planning services that they need. So again, it's always important to periodically check in to see where people are in their journey, as well as what their sexual preferences and sexual behaviors are, because all of that can um, determine what types of counseling that they need. Before we kind of wrap up here, we kind of have one last question. Do you have any references or suggestions for providers who may feel uncomfortable providing family planning services to the LGBTQ population? Yes, I have an exceptional reference, a very patient-centered but also provider-centered article that was written by the wonderful Dr. Mira Shaw. Um, It's birth control access across the gender spectrum, and it goes through and highlights a lot of the assumptions and answers a lot of the questions that patients and providers may have. So if you Google bedsider Mira Shaw, it will be right there waiting for you to read. And it's I have referenced it to patients. I've shared it with colleagues. I have learned a lot of it from it myself. I definitely think it's a very great jumping off point and a succinct point for p- providers who are interested in learning more about this. That is that is one that I do use as well because I, I actually go through that like when I'm counseling patients, but then I will give that link to them so that they can look it up when they're at home. I think that UCSF has a lot of excellent up-to-date evidence-based resources for family planning as well. Depending on where the patient is, for example, in New York, the LGBT Center has monthly information sessions on family planning. If couples want to pursue pregnancy, the, the sessions really go over all, all of the ways in which that can happen, whether it be adoption, whether it be one partner carrying the pregnancy, whether it be using a sperm bank and, you know, all of the nuances that go into it, there are these information sessions that are available to patients and they find them really, really helpful. Juliet Widoff from Callan Lord puts them on monthly at the LGBT Center. All right. So we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? 
these discussions and these conversations are incredibly important to have. And again, Natalie, I applaud you for doing the education that you're doing. And thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to talk about this more with you all. As Natalie said, she and I love to talk about this on our Sunday evening catch ups, because it's so important. And you know, we want to reach as many people as possible. So thank you again for including this as a topic on your podcast. Yes, and we encourage everyone to keep listening because our next episode is also with Dr. Shaw and Dr. Hinchcliffe, and we will be talking more about hormone therapy within the LGBTQ population. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook.